1: Thanks for listening to Pregnancy Pearl's podcast with Dr. Nicole Plenty. Unfortunately, the doctor is out this week on vocal rest. So you have her trusted intern. What I've done is compiled some of the best cases from previous episodes. All right. So now that we know
2: a little bit more about how dangerous it can be in this heat and you know how you can stay safe, let's go to some cases and questions.
1: Our first case is a 38-year-old who is 34 weeks pregnant with her first child. She is a florist and was working outside in the shop's outdoor garden when she became very confused, started profusely sweating, and complained of a headache. Her co-worker gave her a chair to sit down. When questioning if she needed water, she noticed that the patient's speech was slurred. So she and another store worker got her into the car and took her to the hospital. On arrival, she was noted to have a temperature of 101 with a heart rate of 117 beats per minute. Her speech is no longer slurred, but she complains that her heart is racing and that she's dizzy. She is able to move her arms and legs without an issue. The baby's heart rate was slightly elevated in the 160s, but overall reassuring. You were consulted for evaluation and management.
2: This is quite a lengthy case. So we'll break this one down so that we're all on the same page. and We know what's going on. This patient is 34 weeks pregnant. So she's in her later part of the third trimester. She's working outside in a garden. How long she's been working outside? We don't know. But she was found by her co-owner confused. She's sweating and she's complaining of a headache. So first off, if let's say it wasn't really that hot outside because we don't know really where she lives. The first thing I would be thinking if I found somebody confused with a headache is, "Hey, are they having a stroke? Did they have a stroke? Did they have an aneurysm?" Right. So for me, right off the bat, this is an emergency. So I want to make sure if you got a headache and you're confused, we got to figure out what's going on, right? So they took her to the hospital, right? And her temperature is 101. Well, usually. Regular strokes, like so ischemic strokes, meaning you're not having enough oxygen in the brain, it's not going to cause you to have a temperature. So this is what makes me think that this is something that's due to the heat. Either that or she's septic, meaning has a bacterial infection, but she would not feel good enough to even get in the garden if that's the case. So I'm going to assume that the temperature is due to her being outside and overheated. Her heart rate is 117. Normal. Outside of pregnancy is a heart rate between 60 to 100 beats per minute. In pregnancy, your heart rate can be as high as 110 and it still be considered normal. We call that just normal tachycardia of pregnancy, meaning your resting heart rate is just a little bit higher in pregnancy. But hers is 117, so that's elevated for both pregnant and non-pregnant women. Her speech is no longer slurred, so that's good. That means that she didn't have like long-term deficits with the brain but she's still having like a racing heart or what we call palpitations in the medical field. And she's dizzy, okay? She's able to move all of her extremities. So we don't have any deficits or no residual issues if we were thinking she had an actual ischemic, meaning no oxygen to the brain stroke, or hemorrhagic, meaning an aneurysm has burst and she's bleeding into the brain. If that were the case, we wouldn't have movement of the arms and legs If she were bleeding into her brain, we would have some continued deficits. The baby's heart rate was slightly elevated at 160. Now, that could reflect that the mom's heart rate is also elevated. But the good thing is, overall, it looks pretty good. So, for me, the first thing I want to rule out is an actual stroke, right? I want to make sure we're doing a CT scan of the head urgently, and I'm going to consult our neurology or our brain specialist to take a look further. I'm going to do all this order all this and IV fluids to make sure she's very well hydrated. That's pretty much standard when you go on the ER and you feel dizzy with slower speech. They're going to immediately start fluids. But we also want to make sure we're checking the blood count. We want to make sure we're checking her electrolytes with what's called a complete metabolic profile. And of course we want an urgent or what we call stat CT scan of her head. Now, if the CT scan of her head comes back normal and we have this high temperature, we have this high heart rate, then we know this is likely due to dehydration or could be due to a heat stroke, okay? So when we talk about a heat stroke, common symptoms of a heat stroke involve dizziness, headache, some people experience nausea and vomiting, confusion. Um, people experience nausea and vomiting because they're so dehydrated that now it's is causing issues with other organs. And when you deplete all of your electrolytes, that can be damaging. It can affect your heart function. It can affect your kidney and your liver function as well because it's caused by just overheating and extreme dehydration. And when the uh, body becomes overheated, then the organs can begin to shut down. And so that is why a heat stroke is not just something that like affects your brain, like a regular stroke does, like when you don't have oxygen to the brain or when you have bleeding in the brain, it actually causes like the shutdown of organs and the shutdown of your organ systems. And that's why it can become very lethal. Now in, in pregnancy, a heat stroke can happen at much lower temperatures. Why? Because again, you have a little internal heater, okay? It's harder to cool you down. Outside of pregnancy, 104, 105 sustained is what causes, can lead to a heat stroke, okay? All in all, I don't think that this patient was being very safe outside and probably didn't realize the effects of constant heat on the body, which can lead to heat strokes. Now, I am a high risk specialist, so I see all the time people coming in either fainting They're dizzy. They're dehydrated, and all that can lead to an increased risk of preterm labor and preterm contractions. So over this summer, the hospital systems that I'm I'm associated with have had an increased risk of admission and preterm deliveries. Which is why I'm really happy that her baby, although the heart rate is a little bit high, everything else is overall reassuring. But this patient definitely has signs of a heat stroke, but uh, a traditional stroke, meaning no oxygen to the brain or bleeding in the brain, would need to be ruled out first via imaging of the brain, meaning a stat CT scan or an MRI to look at the brain and the vessels to make sure that nothing's affected there. So, the case pearl for this case is: heat exposure of one hundred and two degrees Fahrenheit in pregnancy for greater than ten minutes is associated with an increased risk of heat stroke. All right, medical intern, what's our next
1: case? This one is an email question and it says, Dr. Plenty, I have an 18-month-old child who had RSV a few months ago. So I believe I probably have already been exposed to the virus during this pregnancy. Should I still get vaccinated this pregnancy or do I already have enough antibodies for my baby to be safe?
2: This is a really good question. Like if you knew that you had RSV and you had, and you had antibodies, I would say perhaps you should be somebody that doesn't get the vaccine during the pregnancy and you get the baby vaccinated before eight months, right? If the, if the baby is born during the, um, cold and flu season, but if your baby is going to be born in, you know, May, then, then maybe you don't need the vaccine. Because you already have been exposed and you have antibodies, and your baby's not going to be born in cold or flu season anyway, and so your baby would just need the second step, which is the vaccine between eight uh, eight months and eighteen months um, during the second RSV season. So it really depends on if you really know you have RSV or not. Now, since we don't know, because you're like I probably was exposed. Well, that's not a hundred percent, and so I would recommend that you get uh, vaccinated during the pregnancy between 32 and 36 weeks, because we're not sure, right? And it can only help to get vaccinated. It can only give your baby natural antibodies. There's not a risk to the pregnancy. So we want to make sure that we're keeping this baby as safe as we possibly can. And I'm always in the mindset of, if we can prevent giving a baby one more shot, by getting it in pregnancy. And that way the baby comes out with some antibodies instead of, you know, waiting, you know, a month later when, you know, to get the baby vaccinated in the clinic. It's just always better just to get it during the pregnancy. So that way you already have some antibodies that is crossed the placenta and you also have those antibodies in the breast milk every day. So that helps the baby combat RSV. If you're getting it in the clinic, it's just sort of like, well, what happens before the clinic visit when your kid's a week old and hadn't had their first appointment yet? You can potentially get exposed, especially if it's during RSV cold and flu season. So that's why I always advocate if you can get it done, get it done during the pregnancy, especially now that we have it. Um, but it's up to you. That's a personal decision whether you want to get it done or whether you want to wait for your baby to get it done afterwards. But um, I think because we don't really know that it would be safer just to err on the side of caution and get vaccinated during the pregnancy. So now that you know a little bit more about fibroid degeneration, let's go to some cases.
1: Our first case is a 37-year-old who is 26 weeks pregnant with her third child. She has a known history of fibroids, and she has been in severe pain for about a week. On ultrasound, there is a 9-centimeter fibroid at the top of her uterus. Everything is normal with her baby, but she has a history of a postpartum hemorrhage with her last baby, so her OBGYN does not want her taking any NSAIDs. She's afraid to take opioids, so she was referred to you for counseling.
2: So the first case, um, she's having her third child. We know that she has fibroids, and now this fibroid is like 9 centimeters, right? This sounds like me, except for I had six fibroids and not just one. And she does not want to take NSAIDs. This is like my classic patient. You have fibroid degeneration, you're in a lot of pain, but you don't want to take what we are recommending for you. And then you're afraid to take any other, any stronger pain medicine. Um, And so now you want to know what other option. Well, let, let me tell you. Fibroid degeneration does happen most commonly in the second trimester, That is the main treatment. It is NSAIDs. The reason that we say, hey, try the NSAIDs first or the Motrin or ibuprofen first is because it helps to suppress all the inflammation that's causing the pain, okay? So if we can suppress the inflammation, we can also suppress the pain. That's why when you're on your cycle and you have all that inflammation because the lining of your uterus is breaking down, Okay, we give you Motrin 800, it helps with pain because it's suppressing the inflammation there. Same deal with fibroids, okay? So this is the treatment. Um, But if you did not want NSAIDs or Motrin, then the next thing which you're afraid to take is opiates. But let me tell you, if I had to choose between taking a short course of NSAIDs or taking an opiate, I would take the NSAIDs. Why? Because NSAIDs can... One, suppress inflammation so they have a better effect on pain. Even when people have C-sections and they're having wound healing, most of the time after we get your pain under control, the Motrin 800 works better than the Percocet right? The Percocet usually will take the edge off and it usually makes people a little tired, but it doesn't work as well as your high dose incense to getting rid of your pain because the Percocet and, you know, is not going to decrease inflammation. Tylenol, the Tylenol in there is not going to decrease inflammation. Plus uh, with you using opiates for a prolonged period of time, let's say your degeneration lasted for over two weeks, which usually, like I say, fibrogeneration a couple weeks and it's gone, but everybody's different. But we don't want you using um, opioids or like Norco Percocet through the pregnancy long term because, one, we don't want you to get a dependence, although the likelihood of you getting dependence for just three weeks is very low. But we don't want you to be someone that has a propensity to have uh, opioid dependence. And then, two, we don't want you to get into the third trimester on opioids because we don't wanna increase your risk of your baby having neonatal abstinence syndrome or withdrawal from opioids, okay? So short courses of opioids in conjunction with NSAIDs are better because then you can use the opioids less frequent, okay? So that you're not building up a tolerance for the Norco or the Percocet. We want you to use NSAIDs. Now I get it, some people are afraid to give people NSAIDs if they have a history of a postpartum hemorrhage. Because, you know, Motrin has a little bit of a blood thinning effect, but it is completely safe even with the postpartum hemorrhage, unless you have a history of like an allergy to NSAIDs or you have a issue with super duper heavy bleeding on NSAIDs. It's still, uh, in my opinion, very safe at 26 weeks to give a very short course of incense. You are not about to deliver. This is far from the timing of your delivery. So I would still recommend giving it here. This would still be my first choice at 26 weeks. Now let's say you were 36 weeks. Now it's rare to have fibroid degeneration at 36 weeks, but let's say you had it. Then I would say, hey, let's give her a dose of opioids to help control that. Because I don't give NSAIDs after 32 weeks because that can cause a premature closure of one of the shunts in the baby's heart and that's called the ductus arteriosus. And so we don't wanna cause any issue with cardiac function, but we know that that usually does not happen until after the 32nd week. And so we will give you a short course of NSAIDs up into that time and we know that that is safe, okay? So when we say NSAIDs, we mean Motrin, ibuprofen, indecin. Indocent is very common that, that people give in the first and early second trimester to help with preterm contractions, same medicine. Um, we can give that for pain. Tordal is a little potent not serotonin, anti inflammatory, or NSAID that we can give for short, short spells of time. So, your OBGYN may recommend one of those. At 26 weeks, I would consider that very, very safe, even if you had a history of a postpartum hemorrhage with your previous uh, pregnancy. But also, let's make sure you don't have any um, issues with clotting. Okay, so, so you should have had a workup for that. Let's make sure you don't have any issues with clotting um, so that we can get ahead of the hemorrhage with your next delivery but you're so far from the delivery that i think that this is safe the case pearl for this case is NSAIDs are the recommended treatment for fibroid degeneration unless you have an NSAID allergy
0: everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or McCrispy sandwich but you're the filet-o-fish sandwich all day That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time.
2: And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price.
0: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
1: What's our second case? Our second case is a 29-year-old who is 26 weeks pregnant with her first child. She was told that her baby has too much fluid. She was found to have a baby with a heart defect as well as a protruding tongue on the ultrasound. She had a genetic amniocentesis, which was negative of chromosomal abnormality. She returns for further discussion about causes of the findings. So with
2: having a lot of fluid around the baby, and it said the baby had a protruding tongue on ultrasound. That to me says that may be the reason the baby has too much fluid. Remember we talked about anything that impedes swallowing. So if the baby has a big tongue that's blocking the, uh, the airway or blocking the, um, the esophagus, the throat, then that can mean that fluid around the baby stays there, and the baby's not swallowing as much. So that is probably the reason. Especially since we know that it's noted to be a protruding tongue on ultrasound. The other thing that gives me a little bit concern is that the baby has a protruding tongue and a heart defect. So for me, this is a chromosomal abnormality until proven otherwise. A lot of people think if you do what's called a non-invasive prenatal screen, which is a blood test that's very sensitive for Down syndrome, ninety-nine percent actually. Sensitive for Down syndrome, sensitive for trisomy 18, which is Edwards syndrome, sensitive for trisomy 13, which is Patau syndrome, that it rules it out. It doesn't rule that out, okay? Then we go to the amniocentesis and people think, since I had an amniocentesis, there can't be anything genetically wrong with my baby. Unfortunately, that is not true. And amniocentesis can rule out things that are more than five base pairs long, okay? It's good. It's great technology that's very small but that doesn't rule out that there could be a very small chromosome abnormality. And there are millions of single gene deletions, right? And, and that means that either there's one gene missing or there's like one gene that switched for another. And amniocentesis can't, can't test for millions, right? Just like if you do an amnio, you may not pick up sickle cell anemia unless you're probing specifically for that. Why? because you're talking about a valine and guanine-valine uh, guanine, switch on chromosome six, it's just a switch, it's there, it's just switched, right? So it can't pick up that. Now, if we knew there was something in the family and we want to specifically test for that, yes, an synthesis can do that, but you can't say test for every single gene deletion or mutation, you can't, unless you specifically ask the test to, to screen for it. Otherwise, it's picking up things that are over five base pairs long. I say that because syndromes, like unless you're probing specifically for Williams syndrome, Noonan syndrome. These are things that can have a negative negative, um, amniocentesis, but still come out to have the syndrome. Also, you got to realize there are syndromes that are associated with multiple gene defects. And so some people are diagnosed with syndromes. Not because of the genetics, but because of the features, right? Like we don't know the clinical significance of x, y and z syndrome right now. We know that these are the chromosomal abnormalities that it's been associated with, but not all people with certain syndromes have a specific chromosomal abnormality. Medical knowledge doubles every five years, and unfortunately, we don't know that, hey, in five years, we may know what this baby has or if this is of clinical significance. but right now, Sometimes we don't have that knowledge. So a chromosome abnormality cannot, all of them cannot be ruled out. But if there's a specific thing, then we can rule that out. Usually if I have someone that I think, hey, there's a really high suspicion for a genetic issue, I would recommend a genetics consultation after delivery. And then sometimes what they'll do is they'll do whole genome sequencing or, or exome sequencing. So they look a little closer at the genetic makeup to see if there's something very tiny that is missing, okay? Um, And so that is what I recommend for this patient because of the heart defect and the protruding tongue, what's causing that. Hopefully it's not a defect, uh, a chromosomal defect, but until there is whole exome sequencing um, through a genetic counselor, especially if the baby has features of um, having specific syndromes, I would definitely recommend that. The case pro for this case is, unfortunately, genetic amniocentesis, it's great. It rules out a lot. It's 100% sensitive for things like trisomies, meaning you have too many chromosomes, but it can miss single gene deletions, and therefore, it cannot rule out all chromosome abnormalities, okay? Now, mind you, single gene deletions before somebody goes to their OBGYN and says, oh, I'm not going to get an amniocentesis because Dr. Plenty says it can miss stuff. Single gene deletions are extremely rare. And usually if we have things on ultrasound, if we know this could be either this or this or this, we will let the lab know to run specifically for those specific tests. And if it can't run for those specific tests, we usually do do our research to see if there's a lab that can run that amniotic fluid for a specific syndrome that we think is of concern. But, you know, obviously- It can't run for all syndromes, right? And doctors aren't perfect. So there may be things that happen or things we see that aren't directly related to a certain syndrome. And so we're not thinking uh, along those lines to get that specific thing screened. But either way, the case pearl, genetic amniocentesis does not rule out all chromosomal abnormalities because it can miss single gene deletions.
3: All right, medical intern, do we have any more email questions or cases?
1: Yes, Dr. Pliny. I had a negative pregnancy test about eight weeks ago. I had a pregnancy test done because I had nausea and vomiting. I was told I had a virus, a negative pregnancy test, and sent home. Now, two months later, I just found out that I'm 18 weeks pregnant. How can that be? Wouldn't the test have been positive back then? Also, I was partying and had a few drinks about two weeks ago. How much damage have I done to my baby?
3: All right, let's break this down. So she's 18 weeks, okay? Now, she had a pro- a pregnancy, a positive pregnancy test eight weeks ago, which would have put her at 10 weeks. Could she have a negative pregnancy test at 10 weeks? Well, usually not, right? So usually if you are, you know, missed a cycle, which means that you are like four weeks pregnant, you would have a positive pregnancy test, right? But She was 10 weeks. So I anticipate that her pregnancy test, if she was truly 10 weeks, should have been positive. There's a couple reasons that a pregnancy test would have been negative. One, if it wasn't properly administered, okay? The pregnancy test could have been expired depending on where you went, or they did not wait the, the specific and recommended amount of time to ensure that the test did not turn positive. The latter is more common than just an expired pregnancy test but either or could have happened. So then yes, you could get a negative pregnancy test and actually be positive, but the test was not done correctly. The second question would be, you were partying and you had a few drinks about two weeks ago when you were 16 weeks, how much damage have you done? The good thing is, if you didn't drink in the first trimester, the likelihood that that alcohol exposure or whatever drugs, if you did drugs, the likelihood of it causing damage is very, very slim. Okay. Organogenesis happens between all the number periods between week three to five. Organogenesis, meaning the development of the organs, is in the first 12 weeks, with the last thing to form being the spinal cord. Okay. That doesn't form until 12 weeks. The heart is fully formed by six weeks. We can't, we just cannot see it. We can see a heartbeat, but we can't see all the structures in the heart. So if you drank and partied two weeks ago, you were 16 weeks, all the organs, even if we can't see it, it's already developed. Whatever is there, if there's a defect, it's going to be there. It's not because of something you did two weeks ago. It's because of an exposure that happened during those first eight weeks, okay? So what needs to happen with anybody that has exposure to alcohol, you do need a detailed ultrasound around now, many 18 weeks up to 20 weeks. But so 18 to 20 weeks is the usual timing that most patients get a, an anatomy scan. You need a detailed anatomy scan by someone like me, a maternal fetal medicine specialist that will look at those subtle details to see if there's any findings consistent with fetal alcohol syndrome, or if there's any findings consistent with a heart or brain defects. Okay. Sometimes Babies that have fetal alcohol syndrome have nothing on ultrasound and they actually don't show signs of fetal alcohol syndrome until much later, like age 18 months or two years old. We won't know until that the baby either meets or doesn't meet those milestones. If you have a baby that's exposed to a significant amount of alcohol, there can be signs of fetal alcohol syndrome, physical features. Go back and listen to my episode on fetal alcohol syndrome, which I believe was either early season three or season two. It's a whole episode on this with an expert guest. Go back and listen to it. But nine times out of 10, you having a few drinks one time two weeks ago at 16 weeks probably isn't enough to cause you have a baby with fetal alcohol syndrome, but there's no consistent data that has a minimum amount of drinks that least to fetal alcohol syndrome. So we always tell you, we don't want you drinking alcohol at all, but breathe. All you can do is just not do alcohol going forward. Get the baby evaluated after delivery to make sure there's no signs or symptoms of fetal alcohol syndrome, but rest assured that you likely haven't done any damage at all.
2: All right. So now that we know a little bit more about the postpartum course and what to expect, let's go to some cases and questions.
1: Our first case is a 41 year old who is three and a half weeks postpartum from her second child. She had an uncomplicated vaginal delivery and was discharged home two days later. Since delivery, she has felt more tired than usual and has had swelling. She has had a headache, which has been present now for about three days. She rates her headache as a 6 out of 10 in intensity, and it did not go away with Tylenol. This prompted her to go to the hospital today. At the hospital, her blood pressure was 160 over 108. She was given a dose of labetalol by mouth for blood pressure control in the ER. Her OBGYN consulted you for further management.
2: All right, so this is classic postpartum preeclampsia. And the fact that it's happening three three to three and a half weeks after delivery is like, hallmark for preeclampsia and when we talk about people getting into trouble after pregnancy it's usually a complication of unrecognized preeclampsia for the fact that this patient recognized hey i have a headache that's not going away um i need to go in and see somebody it's this is good because these things are things that we talk about maternal mortality meaning women especially black women dying you have way more women that die in the postpartum course than during pregnancy. We talk about people dying in pregnancy. It's really postpartum. Um, we do have a problem with postpartum insurance coverage. We have a problem with postpartum care here in the United States. And so as women or patients who have babies, we need to recognize when it's not feeling right with our bodies. Okay, If you don't feel right, it shouldn't take three days for you to go in. If you take Tylenol and in an hour, if your headache is not getting better, you go to the hospital, okay? Because insurance only allows sometimes one postpartum visit at six weeks postpartum course. If you're high risk, two postpartum visits, right? Your two week, your, your week check, and then they're seeing you again at six weeks. Uh, a lot of hospital systems that have high risk services do do remote blood pressure monitoring, but some don't. And so as a patient, you have to recognize that this is not normal. And some patients don't want to go in the hospital because they're like, oh, I just had a baby. I don't want to go back. But the safest thing to do is go to go back because nobody ever thinks that something is really wrong until something is really wrong. OK, so I would say that this patient should have went back before, but I'm glad that she's there now. Um, a headache and a blood pressure of 160 over 108 is preeclampsia until proven otherwise. So this patient would need to be admitted to the hospital. And 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 I would not have given her oral medicine. I would have given her a dose of IV medicine because the goal of preeclampsia is to get your blood pressure down pretty quickly and stabilize, right? Um, we start magnesium. That is uh, IV medicine or IV magnesium that will decrease the risk of an eclamptic seizure. So remember I said eclampsia is when you, have, you, you are diagnosed with preeclampsia, but then you actually have a seizure along with the high blood pressure and protein in your urine. And you actually don't have to have protein in the urine to be diagnosed with preeclampsia or eclampsia. You can have symptoms plus the blood pressure. That's enough to be diagnostic of preeclampsia. So for this patient... Regardless of the protein, regardless of the labs, which I will get to evaluate, she would need to be admitted for 24 hours of IV magnesium to prevent a seizure. And then we will initiate IV antihypertensive, so IV doses of labetalol or hydralazine to get the blood pressure down and stabilized. And then once it's stabilized, then we can decide whether or not we're going to send her home on oral medicine once her when she's not having any symptoms and once her blood pressure is very controlled. Um, and so this is definitely classic preeclampsia. And the thing I wanted to point out about this for the case Pearl is that postpartum preeclampsia is more common than preeclampsia during pregnancy. So we have got to watch for the signs. Remember, signs of preeclampsia, whether you are diagnosed during the pregnancy or not, a headache that does not go away with Tylenol. Blurry vision or double vision. And I'm not talking about, oh, you just woke up or you're looking into the sun and you're seeing spots. No, no, no. You're walking around, all of a sudden your vision's blurry or you're seeing spots before your eyes. So vision changes. And then pain at the top right side of your abdomen. So right under your rib cage on the right side, that's pain over your liver. Those are the three symptoms of preeclampsia. And if you have a blood pressure cuff at home, check your blood pressure. If the top number is over 140, which is your systolic blood pressure, or your bottom number is 90 or over, that's high blood pressure. That always prompts a hospital visit when you're a postpartum. And if you go to a hospital, other than the one you delivered at, even the one you delivered at, make sure the ER doctor knows, I just had a baby, my blood pressure is high. Okay. So that they know to automatically consult your OBGYN or an OBGYN that will look for signs of preeclampsia. Because not all ER doctors are going to think preeclampsia. They're just thinking, is your blood pressure stroke range or is it not stroke range? Which we know to have an eclamptic seizure and all the bad things, you don't have to have an astronomically high blood pressure. You can have mild range blood pressures and all of a sudden be discharged home and have an eclamptic seizure. We do not want that to happen. So you need to make sure you tell them, hey, I'm postpartum. I just had a baby X, Y, and Z weeks ago. And if they don't consult your OBGYN, ask them to. Hey, can can you call my OBGYN to make sure I'm okay from a pregnancy, a postpartum standpoint?
0: Pregnancy Pearls is hosted by Dr. Nicole Lee Plenty, produced by Nicole Plenty and Janine Brunson Johnson, executive producer Ken Johnson. Find Pregnancy Pearls on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and rate. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice for diagnosis or treatment of individual medical conditions. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with specific questions regarding a medical condition. Pregnancy Pearls is a Mean Old Lion Media production.
3: Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe.